Today's scripture reading is from Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 30. That's Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'm a happy pastor today. I just came from the Fisher's incubator, and we gave birth to a big baby. (laughs) We ain't got clothes for a 15-pounder. So, uh, my word, I'm so thrilled. The place is full. There's not enough parking. We got some issues. It's really good. Praise the Lord. (laughs) That's a big baby. That's all I'm saying. So it's going to be exciting to see how that grows and what the Lord is doing. Hey, last week we talked about uh, covenant renewal. If you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to get that sermon. It's uh, an important message about where we're going as a church in terms of covenant membership here. And as well, just to remind you, next Sunday we have a members meeting after our Fresh Encounter service to uh, consider a new covenant or revised covenant, and then launching into a season of covenant renewal. If you want to know more on that, it's all on the website. Let's pray. Father, help us now to um, be attentive to your word and give us new categories uh, to think about the hardest moments in life. And I I pray that um, our time in this text would um, create future hope for people in the midst of sorrows and difficulties. So come now, please, help us change our minds and open our minds to what it is that you want us to see from this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope today, February 8th, 2015, happens for you something similar that happened to me on February the 4th, 2003. On February 4th, 2003, I was at a pastor's conference in Minneapolis, and I heard a message on the life of Adoniram Judson, and the text was John chapter 12, where Jesus said, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And in the context of that message, it was for me a significant encounter with the Lord via that text, where... I trembled under the reality of what I felt God was preparing me for. The message was by John Piper, and he said this, God designs that the suffering of his ministers is one of the essential means in the joyful, triumphant spread of the gospel. 
Now, why that was alarming was because there had not been a whole lot of suffering in my life up until then, and I walked out of that message realizing that it may very well be that God was preparing me for something, and I had no idea what that was. Many of you know our story. I've told it before. A year and 14 days later, my wife gave birth to our stillborn daughter, Sylvia, who was just a few days away from delivery. When Sarah first told me, Mark, I don't, the baby hasn't moved, woke me up. The very first thing I did was to get on my knees and say, God, please, not this. It was like a year had been passing in my life of God teaching me things on suffering. And I read material on suffering and began to query the Bible on suffering. And that brought us into the greatest, most difficult, the most life-transforming series of lessons that we've ever had in our lifetime. And then multiple miscarriages after that. A blighted ovum, which was a fake pregnancy with no embryo. We learned in that moment to live where some of you are living today, which is in the tension between pain beyond belief. You can't believe how bad you can hurt, and then divine sovereignty beyond comprehension. Pain that blows your mind, and God's plan that you can't figure out. And there you are, just right there. And I believe that on February 4th, 2003, the Lord began preparing me for that very moment. And I hope that today, for some of you, that this message is the beginning of a preparation for your day when you too will suffer in some way. For some of you, you've gone through far worse challenges than what me and my family have ever gone through, and you have lived in texts like Romans 8, 26 to 30, and others of you are right in the middle of it today, and in God's kindness, he's brought you here for this text on this Sunday, and I think because there's a word from God for you in this passage. Second only to the book of Job, There is no other text in the Bible that has been more influential on my thinking about God, my view of the universe, and in particular suffering than Romans 8, 26 to 30. And it's what's in this passage that has been so incredibly helpful, namely the categories of who God is and how mysterious his work is and how my pain fits into those categories, although I can't always resolve all the tensions. Today what I hope to do is give you two categories that relate very much to assurance. And you may need these today. You may be able to reflect on these and how important they were in your past. Or you will someday need them in your future. If you're under the age of 30, I am so glad you're here. Because if you could learn this, and I could help you. In fact, one of my hopes would be that my legacy here would be that I, I help prepare people for suffering. That when the bottom fell out you knew there was a floor of God's kindness and his love for you, and you didn't shipwreck your faith when you were dealt a really hard blow. So there's two assurances. The first assurance is the assurance of answered prayer, and secondly, it is the assurance that there's purpose in every pain. So the assurance of answered prayer and the assurance of purpose in any pain. Let's look at the first one here. The first assurance in verses 26 to 27 is that your prayers are being answered. Look at verse 26. It says, likewise. Why does he say likewise? Why is that first word there? Here's why. Because everything he's about to say in verses 26 to 30 is connected to what he said previously. 
Remember what he said previously, beginning in verse 18? He said that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's where we were two weeks ago. And then we ended in verse 25, where the text of Scripture calls us to hope for what we do not see and wait for it with patience. That was the charge. But the question remains, so how do you do that? How do you hope and wait for it with patience? And this text is going to help us understand that. The first assurance that we have in verse 26 and 27 is in regards to the personal intervention of the Holy Spirit. And I think the reason why the Bible says this, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So when he says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, he means that in the midst of suffering, the Spirit comes and helps us when we don't have the strength to carry on. He helps us in the middle of our weakness. And the reason that's incredibly helpful is because one of the ways the enemy assaults believers in the midst of their suffering is to tell them you are all alone. God has abandoned you. He wouldn't let this happen if he really loved you and cared for you. Or secondly, another assault that comes is this. God isn't listening to you because your prayers that you're offering up, they're not being answered in accordance to how you would want them. So clearly God doesn't care for you and he's not fixing it. And therefore I have seen far too many believers be angry with God, think he doesn't exist and shipwreck their faith because they don't have a category to put their pain in. So the helpful reality of this text is that you, listen to me, you are not alone. You are not. The Spirit, the text says, helps us in our weakness. You see, the nearness of God and the efficacy of our prayers are ground zero when it comes to suffering. In other words, we struggle by knowing, God, are you here and are my prayers working? And this text answers it definitively, and it says, God is there by the Spirit, and He's answering your prayers through the Holy Spirit. That is the assurance of this text. Verse 26 says the Spirit helps us. Verse 26b says that the Spirit himself intercedes for us. So what this passage is saying is that not only is the Spirit present, but the Spirit is helping us in our praying. Notice what it says in the second part of verse 26. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. What is that referring to? That's referring to those moments when you're suffering and you've either become so weary of asking and not getting the answer you want or you're so confounded by what God is doing that you go to prayer and you don't even know what to say anymore. You don't even, you don't even know what to say. You ever been there? I've been there. You just sit there in silence and you're like, I don't I don't understand what you're doing. I don't, I don't know what to pray. This pain is so huge. And I'm just sitting there with my mouth just, I don't, I don't know what to pray. And, and the beautiful thing about this text is, is the Bible understands that human condition when you have no words to say because either the pain is so great or your mind is just, just completely racked with tensions and problems and you don't know what to say and so what is the assurance the assurance look at verse 26 it says but the spirit himself that's on purpose himself the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words listen to me the assurance here is that the third person of the trinity the holy spirit is not only there he's not only here But in the midst of those moments when we can't speak because the groanings 
from our soul, when it's too deep for words, when these groanings are coming out, it's the Holy Spirit who is taking these petitions, bringing them to the throne of God, and these groanings then become interpreted to fit the very will and the heart of God. What that means is this, is when you can't pray, the Holy Spirit prays for and through you, even in your silence. A few things to note here in this passage. This is the only place in the Bible where the Holy Spirit is said to intercede for the saints. doesn't mean it's um, less important because it's only mentioned once, but it's really essential that you understand the hope of what, why Paul is saying this in the middle of suffering. Secondly, the next verse talks about the hearts of believers. Verse 27 says, He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because he talks about searching hearts, I think that the groanings that are too deep for words, it's not the Holy Spirit's groanings, it's our groanings. We're the one who's groaning, and the Holy Spirit is praying for us and through us and in us through these groanings that are too deep for words. Some people have taken that groanings too deep for words to mean tongues, but... Since this text applies to every believer, um, and, and tongues was a gift given um, to just a few and not to all, it, I don't think it can possibly mean that here. What the text is saying is that the Holy Spirit works through the unexpressed or unable to be uttered groanings of believers who long for the restoration of what's coming They long for the pain and the penalty of sin in the world to be over. It's believers who long, who stand at a grave and go, God, why? I don't even know what to say. Or who are wrestling with cancer. Or who have had failed adoptions. Or who are in the middle of infertility. And they just say, God, all we want is a baby. Don't even know what to say anymore. Or even in asking, there's risk. Like, I'm going to ask, but if I ask, that means I hope. And I don't want to hope because I don't want to get hurt. And so what do you do in the silence that comes? The Bible says is helped by the personal presence of the Holy Spirit. So if that's you and you're here today, I just want you to know you are not alone. You're not alone. And your prayers, even in their silence, even though you don't know what to say, Rest assured, the Spirit of God translates them for you. Now, what exactly does the Spirit do? I just use the word translate. That's close. Verse 27 says, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes, this next phrase is really important, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's what he does. He intercedes in accordance with the will of God. This is how the New Living Translation renders this passage. I think it's helpful. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. What is he saying? What does this look like? It looks like the Father who knows the deep and painful groanings of our hearts, and it looks like the Spirit who takes these groanings and makes them, converts them, translates them into prayers that are conformed to the will of God. So he takes our painful groanings and translates them so that they fit with God's will. So therefore, for a believer, there's never a moment when their prayers are not being offered 
via the Holy Spirit that are outside of God's sovereign will. So every prayer that the Spirit prays or every prayer that a believer prays as the Holy Spirit intercedes for them is fitted with the will of God. The promise is even though you may not see your prayers being answered, you can rest assured that they are always being answered in accordance with God's will. That's the promise. And for some of you, that doesn't sound very comforting. I understand that. The promise is, is that the Holy Spirit is conforming your prayer to God's will. And the question is, does that give you any hope? For years, on our refrigerator, as we are praying for another child, for little Savannah, with Psalm 37, which said, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on my faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And my sweet wife one day said to me, Mark, does that mean that if I pray for a baby that God is going to give me one? Because it says, delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. And I said, oh honey, it means that God will conform our hearts to his will, whatever that is. And that we will cherish that and treasure that more than anything else in life. That's what that means. The question, though, is this. Does that help you? Because there's there's some of you who... And, and I would understand if you're there, because I've been there before, when that reality doesn't, it doesn't feel very helpful. And that's what suffering surfaces. Suffering surfaces a collision between our will and God's will. It surfaces a tension for what we would ask for and then what would the the Spirit ask for. Suffering causes us to evaluate deeply which will in life, God's will or our will, do we really live for. And we can say, oh, I live for God's will. We we can say that. That's very easy to say when blessings are being poured out and success is coming and everything's going according to your plan. You know when that question is really important? Whose will, your will, or God's will? When it feels like the bottom has dropped out, like your plans have been thwarted. That's when that question really matters. And some of you, you're here today, and that's the tension. And I hope that you could, at the end of this service, be able to say, God, I trust your plan. I'm hurting, I'm in pain. This is not the life I desired. This is not what I want. But somehow, someway, I'm choosing today to say, not my will, but yours be done. Many believers struggle with this because for them, prayer is like a quid pro quo. I'm going to pray and you're going to give me what I want. Or it's more like God... I want you to do what I'm asking you to do. And so what happens is that some people come to faith in Christ because they they wanted a bump up in their plan. They wanted their plan with the resources that God would provide. God, you're going to help me. You're going to provide. You're going to bless me. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. I want the abundant life. So I'm coming to faith in Christ. And so therefore, their view of God is all about pouring in blessing and blessing and blessing and blessing. And they don't have any category for suffering as a blessing. So this first assurance is one that some of you may not want. I hope. By the end, you will. The Puritans had a prayer. It's in the book Valley of Vision. 
It's great wisdom here. says this, All wise God, thy never-failing providence orders every event, sweetens every fear, reveals evil's presence lurking and seeming good, brings real good out of something evil, makes unsatisfactory what I set my heart upon to show me what a short-sighted creature I am, to teach me how to live by faith upon thy blessed self. Oh, I hope that you leave today with that lingo in your soul. Teach me how to live by faith upon you. The first assurance is that your prayers are being answered. The Spirit Himself intercedes for us according to the will of God. Here's the second assurance. The second assurance relates to pain. In verse 26, Paul says that we do not know what we ought to pray for as we ought. And then, in verse 28, we find another no statement. So we don't know what to pray for, but then in verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Friends, this is one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. It's a defining text about how you see God and how you see suffering. What do we find here? First, we see that the assurance of this text is not given to everyone. It's given exclusively to those who love God, meaning that this promise is not for the world. This promise is for those who are followers of Jesus. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm so thrilled that you're here. What I'm going to try and do is show you what a Christian view of suffering is, and I hope that by the end you would want to become a follower of Jesus. But you need to know if you're not what I'm about to tell you doesn't apply unless you come to faith in Christ. And, and I'll show you that underneath a philosophy of suffering is the message of the gospel. And without the gospel, you, you can't understand suffering. It doesn't make any sense. Secondly, the promise is all things work together for good. Some have interpreted this that they will, everything will work out in a way that I will see as good. That's not what the passage means. Some also have mistakenly thought that this means that God always blesses his children financially or physically, sort of a prosperity gospel. That's not what this means either. Although God certainly does bless his children, in context here, all things work together for good is linked to this next phrase or statement in the text, which is, for those who are called according to his purpose. So all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, there is this group of people, Paul says, the called, this God-loving, purpose-following people, that for them there is a divine promise over their lives that everything works out for good. Or maybe another way to say it, God is working in all things for their good, for the purpose for which they have been called. It's a startling promise. The promise is this, that children of God can always be assured that there is no pointless pain in their lives. I don't know where I'd be without this hope. How many times that I have received difficulties or challenges in my life and and the hope that comes with dealing with those is the assurance that this is hard, this is painful, but this is not pointless. I may not be able to see the point, 
I may not be able to figure it out. I may not be able to link all of the things together. I may not be able to see the cause and effect. But what I know is who God is and what he tells me is his ultimate aim. And that's in this passage. You've heard me say here before, hard is hard, but hard is not bad. That's, that's my translation of this text, or my application of it. Meaning, look, life is hard, and, and we ought not sort of play around like life isn't hard. Life is hard, and yet, for the believer, hard is not bad. There's a good purpose. Or think of Joseph in Genesis 50, after his brothers sold him in slavery, and he was continually mistreated and lied about. He said this, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That's a great view. Or Job, who says, the Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It means this, that underneath every event in life, every situation, in every plan, excuse me, every pain, is a divine plan that God is orchestrating and working out. The idea is that those who are continually loving God, those who have their hearts set on Him, for those people, God is continually working out His good. He's constantly working out the good in the midst of a believer's life. And nothing is ever outside of that plan. Listen, suffering can be traumatic in that it thwarts our plans. It causes us to be unsettled because now something has come into our life that is outside of our ability to control. And when it's hard and painful, we need the assurance from this passage that there is a divine plan that God is working out. Now some of you might understandably ask the question, well, why in the world would you love a plan that's not your own? What motivates a Christian to love God's plan when you can't see it and it's hard? And that's why you have to understand the gospel. Otherwise, this philosophy, this idea doesn't make any sense. And by the gospel, I mean that God in his mercy set out a plan to redeem the world, to redeem people to himself, sends his son to pay for their sins. And if those people who hear the call of God and see the beauty of the gospel put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in a sacrifice they haven't seen, and if they put their faith in what God promises in his word, the Bible says that this this this, this person will be, or these people will be forgiven of their sins, they'll be adopted into God's family, they'll be declared legally right. And God will set them on a plan, not a path, not only for their redemption, but for the redemption of all those who put their faith in Jesus. And these people have entered into God's plan to redeem the world. They have said, I believe what you say about me more than what I believe about me. I, I believe that there's someone who died named Jesus, and I put my faith in that even though I haven't seen it or I haven't touched him. I believe that that's real, and I've placed my faith and my hope in that. And the fact that you have been forgiven of all of your sins, the fact that God has set his love on you and you have been declared righteous becomes the basis upon which then you see everything else that God does in life. In other words, there is a ground to all of our pain. And when you dig down, 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 the floor of that pain is the gospel. Unfortunately, though, many professing believers come to faith in Christ because they like the sound of forgiveness. They like the idea of someone taking care of their sins. They like the idea of eternal life. They love that. 
Who wouldn't want that? And then suffering comes and they reject God. They're angry with Him or they accuse Him of wrongdoing because in their mind salvation was a way to make their life better. And in many respects, those people put their faith in Jesus because it fit their plan or because at least it made their plan better. And when suffering comes, when it enters into the equation, it tests a very fundamental issue, and that is this. Whose plan are you living for, yours or God's? And that's what suffering surfaces. Who's sovereign, you or God? That's what suffering shows us. So what Paul does then in verses 29 to 30 is he gives us a view of salvation from God's perspective. This is not us looking at salvation from the bottom up. This is God looking at salvation from the top down. You have to see this angle, or you'll only view this text as some sort of fatalistic robot-creating passage. That you enter, When you came to faith in Christ, you entered into this, what I'll call, golden chain of the gospel. All these words that are linked together, and you didn't know at the time when you were entering in, what you were really entering fully into. That there was a plan both behind you and in front of you that was far more expansive and glorious and sovereign than you ever had any idea about. It's like my kids. They know a little bit about life. And the older they get, the wider the expanse becomes of what they really understand. So to us, the more you enter into God's grace, the wider you understand the beauty really is. So what do we see here? First, Paul puts five verbs together that serve as this golden chain of the gospel. And they are designed to show us the totality of Salvation. The words are foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Again, this is God's view of salvation, namely that those who he foreknew, he also predestined. Those who he predestined, he called. Those who he called, he justified. Those who he justified, he glorified. This is God's view of salvation. He views it in its totality. It's the whole thing. Second. Verse 29 has a very important phrase that further unpacks what Paul means when he says called according to his purpose in verse 28. Called according to his purpose. What does that purpose look like? Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. We'll cover those words in a moment. But whatever those words mean, they are linked to what is next. To be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, no matter what you think of foreknowledge or predestination, the fact of the matter is the end game is to be conformed to the image of Christ. So God's plan from eternity past is to take a group of people and to conform them to the image of Christ. And that means that no matter what happens to you in life, the goodness of God, the mercy of God is connected to this. That there's nothing that you can do or someone can do to you or the broken world can do to you or the devil do to you that can take you off of this plan to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And that, friends, brings incredible hope because you can always, no matter how bad the circumstances or how difficult the situation, God helps you in order to have this form and frame Christ-likeness in you. And that is the plan, to become like Jesus. The problem is, though, that many times that's not the plan we want. We don't want to be conformed to the image of Jesus. We just want an easy life. Third, God's aim in this plan is not just to save individuals, but to save a massive group of people. Look at verse 29. In order that he, meaning Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
What's he saying here? It means this, that God's plan for redemption is that Christ is to be the firstborn. He's the first glorified one. He's the first one raised from the dead. And God's vision, God's mission is to have many, many, many brothers who are firstborn, who are just like Jesus, and he's the firstborn. So the idea is this massive group of people who have been called by God and justified by God and glorified by God, and they are before the throne of God, this massive group of people who look just like Jesus. And the point is that your life and my life are just one little part of this massive mission of God's glory to take His people and to redeem them and to show them His glory for all of eternity. I'm telling you, when you stand before Him and you see the beauty and the glory of all of what He is, you may then understand all of the ramifications of what happened to you or... In light of the beauty of God, you don't even care anymore about the why. All you see is the who. The challenge is that we can slip into a Christian amusement park mentality. We're grateful for the rides. We love the experience. We like being part of the large gathering of people. But when the ride gets stuck, we get ticked off. And we're like, I didn't sign up for this. I'm going to sue somebody. I want my money back. The mindset of following Jesus is less like an amusement park and more like boot camp. You're being trained for a mission. And the mission isn't about you. So when you're in boot camp, you don't complain because the push-ups are so hard. You don't whine because the seven-mile run was long. You don't tell your commanding officer, hey, if I run through those woods, I don't want to get wet. Right? You don't, you don't say things like that because you signed up for the challenge. And the reality is there's a very different mindset between an amusement park and a boot camp because of the mission isn't about you. Can I just tell you that suffering can really surface some self-centeredness? A little bit of pain. And no one understands, no one feels my pain. It's all about me and why God is treating me this way and my pain and my issue. And this text reminds us, hey, listen, life's not about you. And and God loves you, he cares for you, but there is a bigger mission, a bigger plan that's in place. And this is not an amusement park. We are on a mission, and the mission isn't us. The mission is God and his glory. So one of the hopeful things in suffering is to be reminded in the midst of this pain, there's a bigger thing that's going on here than just me and my little issue, even though it feels like it's so big. There are some words that are important here. Some of them are hard. Let's start with the easiest and work backwards. Let's start with the word glorified. We're going to get to glorified, justified, called, predestined, and foreknew. Some of you, the whole reason you showed up to church today was to figure out what I was going to do with this text today. (laughs) It made me suffer. Glorified, we talked about this before. Let's cover it quickly. It means that God has completed the process of salvation and we are absolutely sinless. Resurrected body, no wrong desires in the presence of God. We look just like Jesus. That's the end game. We're not there. We long for it. We groan in creation when we see the world being so broken that it's not like that, that there's so many things that are wrong in the world and we long for the day when God will make all things new. And that day is going to come. That's what it means to be glorified, justified. 
justified is the act of God whereby he declares sinful human beings to be righteous by imputing to them or giving to them Christ's righteousness if they put their faith and trust in him. So it's the divine exchange. God takes your guilt and gives it to Christ. He takes his righteousness and gives it to you. And you are legally declared to be not guilty. And that justification, as we've talked about for a number of weeks, means that something has fundamentally changed in my relationship with God. I now have a totally different relationship with Him because of my legal standing. Working backwards. Glorified, justified, now the word called. The word called is a summons. It's where God summons us to salvation. It's where he summoned you if you came to faith in Christ. It's where you see your sin clearly, where God invades your world and suddenly your heart beats to believe in something that you haven't seen, to put your trust in a Savior you've never met, and to believe the truth of the Bible and stake your entire destiny on it. And this supernatural pulling of the heart is what the Bible calls calling. For those of you who... Remember the moment when the gospel made sense and the light bulb went on and you understood it and you were like, I believe that that is the calling of God. It's not just a general calling. It is a specific and effectual calling where God awakens the minds and you see and in seeing you then believe. Predestined. This word is loaded with mystery. And it is beyond our ability to fully understand what all of this means and even how to reconcile the things that are in play here. But it means that God has a plan for everything, especially the conversion of sinners. And that God is working out that plan in accordance with His plan It means that God has done more than just wind the world up and then walked away from it. It means that God is moving and is doing all sorts of things. That God is active and the plan of His sovereign will is not something that is by accident. That God is moving through the course of human history with intentionality and with purpose. And now I cannot explain all the ramifications of that. And what I do is I choose to leave that intention with other things like freedom and choice. You should never hear me say that you don't have to choose to receive Christ. You have to choose to receive Christ, but you also need to know when you choose to receive Christ, you did not do that alone. And how you reconcile those two, I can't. I just leave them there and say, this is one of those things in the Bible that you put your hand over your mouth and say, I do not understand, but I know who you are. It means that God is behind everything, that there are loving aims. The reason why this is important is because when the bottom drops out and things feel like they are unkind or evil or hard, you root your faith in God in the fact that God has a predestinating plan to accomplish all things for His will. After our third miscarriage, and my wife is being wheeled into a surgery room for a DNC, and I am all alone in a waiting room, or in her hospital room, it was one of the darkest moments of my life. And I'm thinking, God, I do not know how much more of this or my wife can handle. And where do you go in the deepest of the darkest of the hardest moments? And you know where my soul went to? My soul went to, I don't know how or why, but I know this is good and I trust 
that you're going to work all of this out for your glory and not my own. And I am not going to hold you hostage to a baby. Because you're my king. And you're my God. And I am merely a man. So this word and this idea, this is really important. Even though there's all kinds of tensions. For new. The word is in close proximity, and it's linked to the word predestined. And Paul uses it here in order to reach even further back into the plan of God. And it means that God was setting his love on us much earlier than we ever knew. It means that God loved us. He set his affection on us way before we ever knew that He was even there or that Christ was the Savior of the world and that God has set His love, His covenant love on us. Now, some people take this word, and, and they're still within the boundaries of evangelicalism. You may even hold this, this view that I'm about to share. Um, some people look at this and say, no, what that means is that God looks into the future and He knows those who would choose Him, and therefore He, he sets His love on those people. So based upon their choice or their knowledge that they would choose Him, those are the people that He sets... His affection on it. And that's one way to resolve it, but that's not my, I can't, that doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me for two reasons. First, because the word foreknew means more than just knowledge. It means relationship. It means covenant love. There's more than just looking forward and seeing something. There, there's something more substantial. But secondly, and I think more significantly, for me it goes like this. If God's initiative is based on merely knowing who would choose Him, I think that takes man's decision-making and makes it more base or more foundational than God's sovereignty. And if I'm going to err, I'm going to err. I'm putting God's sovereignty below my decision-making, even though I can't reconcile all of that. So for me, it makes the authority of man the ultimate value in the universe if God looks into the future, and that's what it means. Instead, I think the ultimate value in the universe is the sovereignty of God. That doesn't resolve every tension. I know. But I think it helps in understanding God's purposes in sufferings, namely that there are far more things that exist in tension than what we even know and realize. And the Bible calls us to patiently trust that God somehow, some way, this pain is being worked out for your good. And I don't see how, and I don't have to know how, because at the end of the day, I know who. And I can trust you. The assurance here, friends, is that God is always answering your prayers in accordance to His will. His plan is always at work, and your pain is never pointless. The issue then becomes, can you let go of your plan? And can you say to Him, I trust you, and you have so redeemed me, and called me, and loved me, and I see the beauty of who you are, I am not going to hold you hostage to, and you fill in the blank, and for you to say, you are God, and I am not. And I think that Romans 9, 10, and 11 bring us to that conclusion, that at the end of the day, it's of Him, and through Him, and to Him, are all things, to Him be glory forever and ever, amen. And we find ourselves with our hands over our mouth, going, you're God, I'm not, and I'm just going to sit here and be quiet, and be still, and know that you are God. Some of you, you're going to have to apply this in your life in the future. Some of you have to apply it right now 
Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about and the battle to get there. I think that pain is probably best expressed in verse and in song and second only to the Bible. There is a particular hymn written by William Cooper that has been of so help, so helpful to me and I have read it I don't know how many times and I'm going to read it again because I think these truths in this hymn serve to very clearly summarize what's going on in Romans 8. So just listen to Cooper and his view of a God who moves in mysterious ways. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage, take the clouds ye so much dread, are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. So judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. And listen carefully. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his works in vain. God is his own interpreter. And he will make it plain. Do you hear me? God is his own interpreter. And he will make it plain. Oh, I hope that some of you could just embrace that today, that God, you are your own interpreter. And I trust you to make it plain. Let's pray. Father, for myriads of painful realities expressed within this room, we, we bend our knee and say, would you help us to see the beauty of what you are calling us to embrace today. And even as we celebrate the Lord's table, that you would re-anchor us into the truths that we hold so dear and use this now, this moment, as a moment of covenant renewal. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Invite those who are serving us for the Lord's table, if you'd come. What a great way to express um, what we've talked about in Romans 8 together by virtue of receiving the Lord's table. Can I remind you that what we're about to do together is a renewal of our covenant where we are reminding ourselves by receiving these elements of both what we believe and the significance of them. In the book of Acts, Peter in talking about the death of Christ, described his crucifixion as something that was ordered, foreknown, and predestined in accordance to God's will. And the reason why that's really important is this, that the crucifixion of Christ is the greatest evidence that God can take the worst thing that ever happened on planet Earth and conform it to the redemption for his people and for the magnification of his name. So if you 
wonder today. Can God really transform this thing in my life? I would tell you, look at what you're receiving. You're receiving emblems of blood and emblems of a body that declare God rules over everything, including the death of His Son. And so as you receive these elements today, be reminded if God can glorify His name even from this, then surely He can take His glory from whatever's going on in your life. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is an important moment. If you're not, these elements they wouldn't make any sense. And so this would be a great moment for, if you're not a follower of Jesus, just to watch what happens. For those of you who know, know Christ as your Savior, it's a moment for us to reflect on what Jesus means, what the cross means. And what it means to trust in God, even in dark moments. And so we're going to receive these elements and then partake of them together. So let's now just enter into a time of corporate reflection as we think of the mercy that God has extended to us.